0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we look back at one of St. Louis history's biggest moments, the World's Fair of 1904. We're not looking at it through the eyes of Judy Garland or debating whether the ice cream cone, the hot dog, or cotton candy were invented there. We're looking at it because of a weekend presentation here focusing on evidence of blatant racism at the fair. This Saturday at the historic Mary Meacham Freedom Crossing in St. Louis, a program titled The Unfair Fair, Prejudice on the Pike, will be presented. Joining me to talk about it is Angela De Silva, adjunct professor at Lindenwood University, historical reenactor and event director and manager. She's also president of the National Black Tourism Network. Great to see you once again. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. You're going to have this weekend event, and what is in and of itself a very historic site.
1: True. Um, the Mary Meacham location is the only nationally recognized underground railroad site located in a farmer-slave state in out of all 11 states. So it's really in, uh, it's 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 miraculous that we have the proof, number one, uh, and then number two, that nothing was ever built on the site. So it's still pretty mm-hmm. much pristine as it was that night in 1855 when the slaves tried to escape.
0: It's an appropriate place to be taking on the issue that you're taking on this weekend. When one begins to read about what went on in that World's Fair, all of a sudden it doesn't seem like such a great event. What are some of the things you're going to be looking at?
1: Um, I... At, in my job, I actually teach uh, a week of, we look at cultural tourism, and one some one of the reasons why and how cultural tourism started becoming a phenomenon during the late Victorian era, and one of it was the idea of humans on display. And so it has always been a fascination, and I've always worked around the edges of it, with here at the 1904 World's Fair when we had the Anthropology Village, uh, and that was a nightmare, Um and we needed to really look at it, but again, we weren't. Uh, St. Louis wasn't the only one who did it. It was done in 1893 at the uh, Chicago expedition, and it and it won't end until 1958 in Brussels. And so the exotic other um, was always on display. But here during the early 20th century, it was from a racial aspect, pretty much from the lens of thank God that's not us. Okay, mm-hmm. so it wasn't that they were really focusing on. Um, the culture of these tribes, so much as it was an examination and a comparison against the uh, quote missing links at white unquote and white European society.
0: So anthropology village then was a place where people were collected from various parts of the world, generally people of color who were put on display. The exactly. word you used
1: exactly, and they. There was a man uh, uh, named Werner who went to LPE, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, sent him to Africa with a list of all of these various tribes to come back, and they thought it would be a major league coup to bring the pygmies back, and the the self-made anthropologist McGee, who worked with Werner, um, decided that that pygmies were the missing link between man and ape because of their diminutive stature. And he wanted them definitely on display. And Vernard was sent there specifically to, to bring them back. But even after they came back, um, you have to remember this is the age of colonialism. Um, uh, around the world and the exotic other for people they needed a justification on why European countries were in Africa and in the Philippines and so they brought back these specimens to see to to put on display to say see how savage they are they need to be brought into the 20th century you
0: you call them specimens I mean I can hardly believe that word
1: (laughs) that's what that is either that or missing links when you see when you really see the reports this is this is the way they were viewed from the very beginning they were never, ever considered to be human beings.
0: One of them is well-known, I think. This, his story, the, uh, the the pygmy from the Congo, Oda Benga. Right. Let's tell his story. We'll, we'll have to be relatively brief because of time constraints, but this this was a pygmy from the, what is now the Congo.
1: That is correct. Um, he had been out hunting. The Congo at this time was under Belgium, you know, when King Leopold had, had brought all the European powers together and divided up Africa.
0: It, it was the Belgian Congo.
1: That is correct. Yeah. And so... At that time, all type of gold hunters, diamond hunters were creeping all over um, Africa, you know, to despoil it. And they came upon Otis, these elephant tusks, Seekers came upon Oda's village, wiped them out. He wasn't there at the time, but his wife and two daughters were killed. And he was kind of running, you know, kind of just manding around in a daze, uh, totally, probably in shock, when he was captured by another tribe. And he was put in a cage. And when Werner comes across him in his search for specimens to bring back here to St. Louis, he runs across and he, he buys Oda from the tribe that was holding him and Oda will then become kind of like, I guess you could say, a leader of, of, of the Pygmies, and I think it's like 20 of them that will come, and Werner will come to depend on him and Oda the same way. When the tra- when the fair was over, Werner had, was out of money. He needed to go back um, to Africa to, to get more things for museums, and when he brought... When he brought it back, the museum said, "Well, you know, it's kind of like we're over Africa now. We need some other, you know, mm. some other, some other things." And so Werner was trying to get the money to to take Oda back. But he does he does on that second trip take Oda back. But Oda realizes there's nothing for him there, and he convinces Werner to bring him back. When Werner brings back that second load of things, uh, it doesn't sell for the prices he wants to. So he leaves Oda with the I think it's the, either scientific or historical society in New York. And they start selling tickets on Sunday afternoons. They dress him up, look, you know, to and these real satin clothes make him, you know, really look like a performing, you know... Uh, Monkey. Yeah, I didn't want to say that, yeah, but well, you're right. That's exactly it. And what he could do, and he was always, quote, um, he learned to ape the from the fair uh, his betters as they say and they thought it was hootin' a holler uh, but so many people kept wanting tickets that they decided to move him to the Bronx Zoo and where he could be on display seven days a week and they move him into the monkey cages where he will perform with a monkey okay when you see that picture of him that that's around with the monkey on his hip that's one of the monkeys that they become you know he that becomes attached to Oda The hue and cry of this was for a long. At first, they wouldn't let him out. Then they let him out to walk around the zoo. Uh, He couldn't leave because there was people watching him all the time, but it became an issue letting him out because people, believe it or not, kept trying to steal him for circuses and kidnap him. So they had to keep an eye on him all the time. By this time, it had gone national that a human being was held in this monkey cage and the hue and cry did go up nationwide. A group of ministers from North Carolina um, convinced the zoo to discharge him into their care. And he they will take him down uh, to the Carolinas and they enroll him in school. elementary school and the man's like 37 years old and they enroll him in school and he gets a crush on a twelve-year-old girl. Well, that's unseemly, and so they pull him out of school, make him work in a uh, tobacco factory. But by all appearances, he liked the work, and the workers liked him. They liked his stories of Africa. But then he always was saving his money with the hope that he would be able to go home. And World War One broke out, and he realized then there'd be no transatlantic traffic. He would not get back. And one, they said that they were the town people said they were used to seeing him on certain times of the. Moon would go up on hills outside of town, and they could hear him chanting and dancing at the moon. And I guess it was some type of spiritual ritual. But this particular time, um, he goes out. They did not t- know that he had taken the owner's gun. He goes through these rituals, takes his clothes off, folds them up, and kills himself on top of that
0: hill. That's an extreme case of of what was one of the some of the fallout from the uh, from the fair. Were other people brought to the fair from places like the Philippines and Africa unwillingly? Uh,
1: not okay, that's the other thing that I think is a misnomer. All of the, these people though, whether or not they understood the value of money, they were paid. The igorots for example were given a $10 gold piece, and I think that was by the month, okay? Uh, per person, but a lot of them didn't, you know, they weren't weren't sure what to do with it. But that that is that's not To me, the big problem here, when you have people from the tropics, like the Igorots, who, you know, those are the people who ate the dogs. okay, Mm -hmm. And we'd have to talk about that, too. But that was something they did on their high holidays. When McGee and LPE, the board of directors, find out about this, they start making them do this and skinning these dogs in public to be able to roast on a Sunday afternoon. And this becomes this is something people buy pay money to see, to buy tickets for. But you have the pygmies that are coming out of the Congo. You have the Igorots that are coming out of the jungles of the Philippines. And LPE will not allow these people who are not used to temperatures below 70 degrees mm. to wear clothes. This this fair will open on uh, April 30th and not close until December 1 and refused to let these people wear clothes. If you can imagine being in a loincloth in St. Louis running around in November, then you know. Then you get a feel for what was going on.
0: Was there any kind of an outcry about the treatment of these people from the citizenry?
1: No. And the reason why, for example, they the LPE won't let them have clothes is that the whole idea is to show these people in their natural state. You put clothes on them, and it's not really going to be until the pygmies go on strike like the first of Middle of September, they refused to come out of their huts. It was so cold to them, and LPE at first wouldn't let them have wood to have the get fires. Then they allowed them to have a couple of sticks of wood, uh, and they could only burn it not during pu- not during p- the public hours. And then what happened? The pygmies got so cold that the Native Americans at the Native American at the Native Indian school will give the pygmies blankets, and this kind of then put Shames LPE into doing something about it. So that's when they. Give them the khaki shorts and and the shirts, um, and this is we're talking about October, November, mm. when this is when this happens.
0: You point out Native Americans; they were also put on display, if you will, <clears throat> along with the uh, Asians. You mentioned the Philippines, but I-, I saw one sign someplace talking about the Chinks, the Chinese. <gasps> that they, had. I mean, the racism was <laughs> running rampant at this. They
1: thing. had uh, one of the concessions <clears> along <throat> the pike, as they had uh, Japan, a Japanese tea house, and they had brought these geishas over. And this, to me, is one. Of The funniest stories. It brought them over, and you know all the ritualized tea services. And this is what they're doing there at the tea house. And um, but when I write about what you're, you know, the panels that you're going to see on Saturday. It, the Japanese were held, at, at, was considered civilized, and they did not meet the same level of racism that the darker people did. And so they had all of these geishas in a small hotel off of Union uh, Boulevard, and when the fair was over, these women barricaded themselves in their hotel and refused to leave. They had to bring the Missouri <laughs> militia in, get these women out, escort them all the way to San Francisco to a boat, and put them on the boat to send them back. However... The Zulus is something totally different. Zulus, the every, you know, the Boer War had just been fought in South Africa, and that was the Dutch and the British fighting it out over the gold and diamond mines. And so, of course, the British won. And, but the Zulus had sided with the British. And so to bring all the animals and everything, I mean, this is a huge, these guys come over on two ships um, to, to refight the Boer War two times a day at the World's Fair. There were a contingent of Zulus that came with them. The black community here took a liking to them and starts advocating for the Zulus, saying you don't have to stay here because they spoke English and convinced 20 of them the black community gave them Western style clothes, and these 20 Zulu men will walk straight out the front door. Mm-hmm. The black community hid them, and they were never returned to South Africa. And about Five years ago, I ran into the I had a, one of the granddaughters of one of these men in my class, mm. and but she had no idea of the history of her
0: grandfather. The Zulus, of course, were fierce fighters in uh, in South Africa, and uh, very highly regarded for their abilities in that. I have to take a break. We'll do that now and come back because there's another side of the story about racism and segregation at the fair, and we'll do oh, yeah. that in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, ninety point seven KWMU. Welcome back to our conversation about the unfair fair of 1904. One of the things we have to point out was that the racist attitudes within the confines of the fair were one thing. The other part of it was that African Americans in St. Louis who wanted to go to the fair didn't have the kind of access that whites had. What about that?
1: it's actually going to start um before the fair opens there's a um a letter in the records dated March the 26th 04 where a woman from the black community who was part of the committee on colored day um at the fair um had was the was out there for a meeting and the, remember this is under construction uh there's a lot of mud it had rained that day but there were service cars that would take you one end of the park to the other No service car would allow her to get in because of her color and just point blank told her this when she finally did have her meeting and got back and told the committee here in St. Louis what had happened. They wrote a very strong letter uh, to David Francis saying, is this, you know, is this a proponent of what's coming? And so he, he never answered. OK, um, and but then that's in March. And but it's all going to all these are going to keep filtering in these incidents until June 2nd. On June 2nd, The New York Times, The, Post, uh, the Globe Democrat and about 16 other newspapers will write stories about racism. that will come out. Now it's gone national. Now they have to do something. And so they set up um, a bureau of colored affairs. In one of the smallest buildings on on the site, uh, let me explain. For example, the fresh water concessions were um, you would go up to a concession, you'd put your nickel down, and they'd give you a, a glass glass. Remember, this is 1904, mm. and there were taps that you could turn to get the water on. None of the fresh water vendors would allow would give black people fresh water, um, and quite frankly, they wrote to LPE saying that they were afraid that any white patish, uh, uh, patrons would find out that even remotely that a black person had drank out of that glass, don't care how many times it was washed, the answer was no. They would lose business. So none of them would. Um, there were incidents where uh, black people were would sit down in restaurants and were told to get up. They'd have to go around through the back door to the kitchen and could get something to go. So in June of that, late June of that year, um, they will create the an official colored bureau in a very small building. They will hire a socialite out of Washington D.C. Um, to ed, who preside over this building. Um, now, what's supposed to take place is this is where colored people would have would the only place that seems like they could go get fresh water, use the restroom, mm-hmm. and be able to sit down and have a rest. Okay, so this this is going to be late June. Now, the fair opened in. In, in April, April. Yeah. okay. Um, and then it gets worse. Negro Day was supposed to be August 1, uh, which is Emancipation Day around the nation. Um, there was a huge committee here in St. Louis that had planned a massive uh, turnout, and one of the things that was going to happen. They were going to have a civilian and military parade to kick off the day. Four black units, like including uh, the biggest one, was the Eighth Illinois, had been invited here by LPE to participate in this in this in this uh, parade. Um, they were going to be bivouacked in a part of of the grounds that's kind of like where. Um, Highway 40, and where the science center is, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, this is where all the military encampments were. Somehow, at some point, Georgia military unit, who was going to be ground on the grounds at the same time, found out that the 8th Illinois was going to be there and that they were black. They raised this hue and cry with LPE, saying they would not, number one, be bivouacked, and number two, eat at a concession with these black other military units so david r francis has to make a decision so he threw the black folks underneath the bus okay and he sent they send the letter and actually it wasn't signed by him it was signed by a colonel height a lieutenant height rather and lieutenant height says well you're now going to have to find someplace else to pitch your tents and you're also going to have to figure out a way to find to feed your people however we have found a concessionaire that will charge your people 25 cents a man per meal. They were supposed to be here a week. That's an incredible expense that all of a sudden these black units have to um, have to incur. And they wrote back and said, "Thanks, but no thanks." And when the committee here in St. Louis heard about this, they canceled um, uh, August 1 Negro Day, when every other nationality on the planet had a day. And also, let me inject something here, because uh, I really want you to understand why this is so horrible uh, in, on another different level. At the, Paris 19, at the 1900 Paris Exposition, at the World's Fair in Paris, the United States had a massive building there one quarter of that building in Paris was dedicated, quote, to the progress of the American Negro. W.E.B. Bois had curated over 700 pictures in, to prove in less than 40 years since Emancipation the progress of black people, the amount of farms, the amount of businesses. And he actually won a gold medal from the exposition itself because of this incredible display that he put on. Here, though, we go from being lauded... Uh, in France and, and awards to being on display. Back on American soil. And mm-hmm. this, is, this is the dichotomy at the times that really needs to come out.
0: This is why people like Josephine Baker and a lot of musicians left this area and went to France.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, again, we can't get a drink of water here, but yet in Paris, the United States government wants to put on this excellent show about the progress of the American Negro. So we have to ask, which we are going to be asking on Saturday, what was that progress on American soil? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, explain it to us.
0: I've got a caller here who wants to get in. Probably wants to backtrack a little bit on one of the things we talked about earlier. Catherine in St. Louis, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hello, thank you. Um, I was just calling to thank uh, Professor De Silva for um, keeping this narrative alive. Recently, a local artist, uh, Ben Pierce, had a art show at Hoffman Lachance Gallery, um, and it was actually <clears> titled <throat> Oda Benga. Um, And the artwork was inspired by this young boy's story and considered uh, what it meant to be other, um, looking at the immigrant experience, um, and then also the experience of African-Americans in St. Louis. So just wanted to say thank you for continuing to share an important part of um, the history of of St. Louis, and I'm glad that there are um, several people who um, are keeping the story alive. Thank you. Did anything positive come out of all of this? I mean, if the New York Times and the Globe Democrat were pointing toward racism, did it change anything with regard to societally uh, in town?
1: No. And it's because of the dichotomy of, you know, we have North and South uh, predilections toward race here. We always had, okay? I mean, all the way going back to Annabellum, St. Louis, and there are some places where it shows up and some places not. And to their credit, Francis, the official policy was that all are welcome, that they're, you know, that, you know, we're going to take your money just like everybody else's for an entrance and all are welcome. However, in practice, It's something else. You know, think Starbucks. Okay. That's not the company policy, but this is what happens. And this is the exact same. But, and their defense when all this blew up was we can't control individual concessionaires. How they can't, we can't tell them how to run their business. And that was their out, if you will. That's how they, you know, could cover this up. But no, it really. Didn't we go? We will go back to business as usual um, after it is over.
0: And Francis went off to Russia. He became America's ambassador to Russia. Exactly. It, I mean, it, it was a feather. A time is winding down, but I do want to get the quick story in about Geronimo, one of the fiercest Apache warriors uh, during the nineteenth uh, century. He wound up at the fair.
1: Right. He was eighty years old when he was brought from federal prison. Um, he is a he is a prisoner of the federal government um, as a war criminal. And um, but he was allowed to come. He sat his own teepee. He was allowed to walk the grounds, though there were guards that kept him in sight all the time. But um, he would make arrows and they became highly sought after. I think he was charging a dollar a piece for them. And to have his picture, you know, take your picture with him. I think he was charging 25 cents and he made quite a bit of money. Now, there's two different camps on this. Some people say the federal government <clears throat> took it um, when he left. Uh, when he, uh, uh, because it applied to his room and board, you know, they figured they, you know, he owed him, and then there's some to say he was able to keep it. But one of the one of the funny stories that I found was that Geronimo and Oda Binga, because again, both very proficient in in arrows bows and arrows. Could be seen together sometimes sitting very quietly or walking, not saying anything because they didn't share a language, but they were together. And I think mm-hmm. it was that, that commonality of the bow and arrow to see this ancient proud Indian and this you know, four foot ten you know, pygmy walking around the grounds.
0: We, we have limited time left. Uh, we could talk all day about this, <laughs> Angela. Uh, tell us, what folks, what they can expect this weekend. We've got about a minute left. All
1: right. Um, it's a, Again, we are always a, a multi-generational uh, event. Um, we have outside participants, or could I say partners, this year with the Science Center. Um, at all World's Fairs, it was always the next big thing. Mm. And so we're bringing introducing science. And there will be tabletop <clears> exhibits <throat> that the kids can do with icky science, creating slime, and that kind of thing. Um, uh, we have the um, Harmony Circus um, because there was always circus acts and animals. And so they will be doing a stage show and be teaching the public how to do acts in hula hoops. There is a hour long uh, dramatic production on various vignettes on what happened at the fair. And it's, it's quite dramatic. We're going to put
0: all of that information on our website at STOpublicradio.org. Angela De Silva, I wish we had more time. Yeah. Of Lindenwood University, you are a fountain of information <laughs> about the 1904 World's Fair. Again, the Unfair Fair will take place from noon to 5 this Saturday at the Mary Meacham Freedom Crossing on the St. Louis Riverfront. Thank you again.